Shall we just carry on praying for a moment uh, as we sit? Lord God, we do thank you uh, for your word, uh, and we pray tonight that you would uh, speak to us by your spirit, through your word, uh, that we might learn more about the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust him more fully, we pray, in his name. Amen. Great, we're in Acts 9, 32 to 43. It'd be brilliant if you could uh, turn it up and keep it open. It's on page 1103. Well, along with much of the rest of the country, um, I spent last Monday evening watching the Queen's Diamond uh, Jubilee concert. Good affair. But the format of the concert was, was fairly predictable. It started off with a bang, with Robbie Williams, Let Me Entertain You. How many times has that been done? Uh, And then ended with the global stars of Kylie Minogue, Elton John, Stevie Wonder, he's quite a catch, and Sir Paul McCartney. Don't get any bigger than that. But many of the acts in the middle just seemed um, a bit less inspiring, a little bit less exciting in terms of how they came across. JLS, Cheryl Cole, Grace Jones... How weird was she with a hula hoop? Uh, Ed Sheeran, never heard of him, that's probably just me. But they felt like the kind of warm-up acts for the big stars uh, to come. Uh, And at first glance, the passage we're looking at tonight seems a little bit similar, because we've just had the dramatic and hugely significant conversion of Paul, the man who will become one of the foundation stones of the church. Saul's conversion is, de- is described in great detail, taking up most of chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, we've got the great event uh, of the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius, the first Gentile to be converted to Christianity, breaking down the traditional religious, religious divides. And kind of compared with the conversions of Saul and Cornelius, the, the events of the passage we're looking at tonight, kind of sandwiched between the two, just seem a little bit less significant, a bit more provincial. We have two miracles told in a very straightforward manner, involving seemingly unremarkable individuals, Aeneas and Tabitha. Both are probably already disciples, and neither makes a reappearance after this passage. So why has Luke recorded these two miracles for us? In answering that question, it's really important for us to remember the purpose of the book of Acts. Acts was written by Luke as a sequel to his gospel. So Luke's gospel, volume one if you like, records Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. Volume two, the book of Acts, records what Jesus continued, continued to do and teach through the ministry of the apostles. That's actually clear from verse one of chapter one of Acts, where Luke writes that his former book, i.e. his gospel, he wrote all about all that Jesus began, began to do and teach. So the implication is that Jesus is continuing to do and to teach through the ministry of the apostles. And that's what Luke uh, is recording in Acts. So as we look at tonight's passage, the question is this. What is Jesus, what is Jesus continuing to do and to teach here? What is Jesus up to? What is he about? What is Jesus doing in this passage? Well, I've identified three things uh, that Jesus is continuing to do and teach here. And the first is this. Jesus is drawing out faith in people. He's drawing out faith uh, in people. And he draws out faith 
through impressive evidence. So the Apostle Peter reappears at the start of the passage. He was perhaps the leading apostle of the time. He'd feature quite heavily in the first part of Acts. But he's disappeared for a bit. But now he's back and we're told in verse 32 that he's travelling about the country, almost certainly preaching the gospel to those who'd not heard it, visiting churches, where there are new Christians to encourage them in their faith. And on his travels, he visits the saints, or the Christians, in Lydda, a town about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And in Lydda, he encounters Aeneas. Aeneas is paralysed, bedridden for eight years. This guy's life would have been tough. There were no wheelchairs, no NHS, no disability living allowance. He would have had to be carried everywhere, unable to, to work, and dependent on others. It's not clear whether Aeneas was a believer, but the passage suggests that he was. Because we're told that Peter visits the saints of Lydda, and there, there he found Aeneas. So the implication seems to be that he's one of the Christians in the town. So what does Peter do? Verse 34. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. This is a massively impressive raising, restoration. It's told so simply, we can kind of miss that. It's easy to gloss over what an astonishing event it was. But this guy's been bedridden for eight years. His muscles would have been wasted away. Yet following Peter's words, he's immediately seen walking about. There's no referral to the physio, no rehab program, no crutches. It's a sudden and a dramatic change. What about the raising of Tabitha or or Dorcas? It's perhaps even more impressive. We're told a bit more about Tabitha. She lived in Joppa, about 10 miles from Lydda, up on the coast. She was a disciple, verse 36, a believer in Jesus Christ. She's always doing good, helping the poor. By all accounts, she was a really generous and compassionate woman. But she's become sick. She's died. It's probably a significant blow uh, to the Christian community. People gather to weep. Her body's washed and placed in an upstairs room. So when the disciples in Joppa heard... Uh, that Peter was down the road in Lydda. They sent men to fetch him, probably about a three-hour journey by foot each way. And doubtless the disciples would have heard of the miracles that Peter had been uh, involved with. Because as well as the restoration of Aeneas, the Lord had worked other great miracles uh, through Peter. You only have to look back at chapter 3 to see Peter healed, heal a crippled beggar in the name of Jesus Christ. So they probably believed, this guy's going to help Tabitha. This is a solution. Peter arrives, doesn't he? Verse 39, he's taken to the room where all the widows are mourning. He asks everyone to leave, and then he gets down on his knees and he prays. And look at verse 40. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and widows and presented them to her alive. Wow. These are impressive works. Breathtaking miracles. And they're not lost on the people of Lydda and Joppa. How do the people of Lydda react to the restoration of Aeneas? Verse 35. 
All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The same is true of the people of Joppa, after they saw the risen Tabitha, verse 42. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. So as news of these miracles spread, people were turned to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do so because they, they know it's clear that Jesus is at work here. Through the impressive evidence of these miracles, Jesus is drawing out uh, faith in people. You know, don't be mistaken as we look at this passage. Don't think that the purpose of these miracles is to somehow demonstrate how great uh, Peter is or special he is. Rather, they show how great Jesus is. That's what they're about. Peter has no personal authority over healing or disease or death. Only Jesus. Only he has that authority. And Peter is just an instrument. And his actions demonstrate that. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ heals you. Not me, not Peter. Jesus Christ. And when he comes to Tabitha, he empties the room, doesn't he? He kneels. There's no kind of public US-style stage flashing lights. Why? Because he knows that only the Lord can raise people from the dead. And yet his miracles are really important in just showing us the authority of the Apostle Peter. Because there's a really clear echo here of the miracles that Jesus performed back in Luke chapter 5, when he healed a paralysed man, and in Luke chapter 7, when he raised a widow's son to life. And these echoes endorse Peter's apostolic ministry. The miracles show that Peter is an apostle. He's continuing the ministry of Jesus. Like Jesus, Peter tells the man on the mat to get up. Like Jesus, he tells the woman who has died to rise up. His his words carry the authority of Jesus. And that's crucial, because, because Peter was an apostle, because he was commissioned by Jesus, the church could be confident about the message that Peter and the other apostles preached about salvation, about the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 puts it like this. Just listen to these words. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So in other words, the miracles give credibility Uh, to the preaching of the apostles uh, and the message of salvation, the message of the forgiveness of sins uh, that they had, that they proclaimed. I guess a really obvious question here, uh, and it's one we've touched on already, is that if these miracles at the time are part of what brought people to faith, shouldn't we want or shouldn't we expect uh, such miracles to accompany our gospel sharing today? Is that something that we should be looking for? expecting? Wouldn't it make Christianity explored a little bit more credible? Wouldn't it make uh, street partnering that little bit more striking if these sorts of things happened? God is an all-powerful God, isn't he? Massively powerful. The sovereign Lord, there's nothing he cannot do. And if we are believers, God will use us powerfully. And we'll think more about that 
in a moment. But I think it's important for us just to note here that the sorts of miracles that were happening in Acts were to mark out the apostles. That's the argument that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he describes the signs that mark an apostle's signs, wonders and miracles. And the apostles were a small group of original eyewitness gospel carriers commissioned by Jesus to carry out his word with authority as the early church took root. They had a particular and a unique role in church history. So God is not changed. He's exactly the same God. And he will use us hugely powerfully in different ways. But these sorts of physical-type miracles are not normative uh, for us today. They're not the sort of things we should expect uh, to accompany our gospel sharing. But Luke has recorded these miracles for us, hasn't he? They're there in the pages of Acts. So what do you make of these miracles? What do we think of them? There's so many things vying for our trust and attention. But it's just really important to remember there is no one more wonderful or more worthy of our attention than Jesus Christ. No one. Jesus Christ alone died for us. He alone rose eternally from the dead. He alone offers us forgiveness of sins, peace with God, life eternal. It's important to remember that. Will we, like the people of Lydda, like the people of Joppa, choose to trust him day in, day out? So firstly, Jesus is drawing out faith in people. I think the second thing that we can see in this passage is that Jesus is reflecting his character in his people. Reflecting his character in his people. One of the really interesting things about this passage is a little pen portrait uh, that we get about Tabitha or Dorcas. We're told she's always doing good, always helping the poor, always. Not just once, not just twice, not just last week, not just last Christmas, always. The original translation describes Tabitha as being full of good works and acts of mercy. And we're told she made robes and other clothing for widows, and widows would almost always have been poor and destitute people. So here she was, helping the poor, helping to clothe them, and helping to to supply their needs. Why does Luke bother giving us these details, do you think? Surely Tabitha's good life wasn't the reason why she was raised up from the dead. That's not suggested anywhere in the passage. And we're told nothing about Aeneas, and yet he was restored. The reason is surely to encourage us that as Christians, we should be known for our good deeds. That's what Christians should be known for. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So we should be full of good works and acts of mercy. Good works and acts of mercy are are the marks of a Christian disciple. Sometimes we get a bit nervous, don't we, about talking about this sort of thing. And, And for a good reason, because we don't want people... Uh, to misunderstand that being a Christian is about doing good things or living a moral life. That is such a common uh, misconception. We don't want people to mistakenly conclude that being a Christian is about what you do, that you've got to somehow earn something, how you behave. That would be totally wrong. What we believe is of fundamental and paramount importance. 
But, you know, just because that is true, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that good works and acts of mercy will be the marks of an authentic Christian disciple. Tabitha is a disciple of Jesus. And in her compassion, she shows the character of her saviour. Good works are core. They're at the heart of the life of faith. They're not just a kind of optional bolt-on extra. Where there is true faith in Jesus Christ, there will inevitably be good deeds. That is the mark of a true believer. Until a couple of years ago, I was involved in a beach mission, a type of Christian holiday camp up in uh, North Wales. And there were always around 50 adults on the team uh, each year. And one year, very unusually, we had a cook on the team who was a friend of somebody else on the team who wasn't uh, a Christian. And towards the end of the two-week beach mission, uh, this guy gave his life uh, to Christ. And in the testimony that he gave, which was very moving, he described how completely astonished he was by the behaviour and the character of the team. And he was struck by how the team was made up of people from every walk and every age of life who would normally have nothing in common, would not choose to associate themselves with each other. And yet he described how he was moved by the love of the team for each other, for the people they work with, how in the small ways and the bigger ways the team gave themselves up for each other, up for each other in service, And for Steve, the character of the team really reinforced and authenticated the message that we proclaimed each day of the saving power, the liberating power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That was crucial to him. And I was thinking as I was writing this sermon, how many people have I personally known who have come to faith? Not that many, sadly. He was one, and that was crucial as part of his coming to faith. Very striking. I guess on one level we can take that as something of a challenge. Are we full of good works and acts of mercy? Are there more things that we can be doing? But I think there's probably a bigger point here, and that's that we can be really encouraged. If we're disciples of Jesus Christ, Jesus will be replicating his character in us. That's what Jesus does with his disciples. You know, at times a Christian life can feel quite a discouraging grind. We often fail. We blow a bit hot and cold. You kind of start work on Monday morning, you've got 15 balls in the air, you've got to keep up, and Jesus kind of drops to the bottom of the list. And we don't always feel that we're a great witness for Jesus. Well, if that's us, we should never forget the amazing change, amazing change that happens when we put our trust in in Jesus Christ. The most incredible change happens. Just think about the really extravagant language that the Bible uses to describe that transformation. We're brought out of the dominion of darkness into light. We become a new creation. A new creation. Wow. Quite exciting. We're made alive in Christ, a child of the living God. We're God's workmanship. A dwelling in which which God lives by his spirit. What amazing descriptions of the transformation that happens when we come to Christ. Amazing. 
And if we're Christians here tonight, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. He's shaping us. He's changing us more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we might feel like failures. We might feel we don't always get it right. But we shouldn't underestimate the power of a life that is joined with Jesus Christ. If we're Christians here tonight, Jesus is replicating his character in us. And he will use us as we go out, as we seek to share the gospel, as we just live every day, wherever we are. He will use us for the growth of his kingdom and his glory. So we can be encouraged that that is true. So Jesus reflects his character in his people. I think finally, in this passage, Jesus is modelling or previewing his victory. As with the miracles in the Gospels, uh, the two miracles that Jesus performs through his Apostle Peter in this passage point beyond themselves. They're not just an end uh, in themselves. So the healing of Aeneas, the eight-year paralysed man, points beyond itself to the complete wholeness that Jesus will one day give to him and to all those who believe in him on that last day when Christ returns. The raising of Tabitha points beyond itself to that lasting, immortal, final resurrection that Jesus will give to Tabitha and all who trust in him. So impressive though they are, the miracles in this passage are only temporary. The restoration of Aeneas is impressive, decisive, immediate. The best moment of his life, no doubt. But in the end, he died. He's not walking around Lydda now. Good job. Or he'd probably be somewhere on Tel Aviv Airport, uh, which, is where, which is built on the site of Lydda. It was only a temporary restoration to health. The same with Tabitha, isn't it? Tabitha was miraculous, miraculously restored from death to life. But it's not an immortal life. Tabitha died again. She wasn't restored to a life that would last. It was only a temporary resuscitation. Yet both miracles are a sign that point beyond themselves. They're a scale model, a preview, a kind of pen portrait of the final restoration to immortal life that every person who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ will, will receive. So through these miracles, Jesus is previewing his victory. He's demonstrating through his apostle Peter that, that he has the power over death. He alone holds the keys to death and hell. Death is a realm that Jesus controls. And this passage shows that he can overcome death at will. You know, neither Aeneas or Tabitha could do anything to help themselves, could they? One was bedridden, the other dead, helpless. Hopeless. And by ourselves, that is precisely where we are before God. Dead in our sins. Any righteousness that we have is imagined. But the good news of the gospel, the gospel that was preached by the apostles in Acts, is that God in his mercy has provided help. Jesus came to deal with the problem of our sin. Jesus came to die on the cross as a ransom and exchange the righteous for the unrighteous. 
And if we put our trust in Jesus, we are made alive with Christ and raised up with him. And we have a certain hope one day of being raised up to eternal life. I wonder if we're here tonight and we're Christians, do we sometimes doubt that? Do we sometimes just think, is that really going to happen? Or are somehow we going to drop off the register at the end of time or not be on it in the first place? Will we really get raised up to new life? If you're ever tempted to think that, just listen to these words of Jesus from John chapter 6, verse 39, and I'll end with these words. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you that you are a living uh, God, not a God who's died and is buried. Uh, You're a God who's alive, uh, who is working through his people, working through us. And we praise you for that that great truth, that great encouragement, uh, that by your spirit you are shaping us, you are renewing us, you are changing us into the people that you would have us be. And we ask that as we go out into a new week, that we would remember uh, that we are your children. We have been brought from uh, the dominion of darkness into the light. That we are your workmanship. That your spirit uh, is dwelling within us. And Lord God, that we might uh, trust you to use us and be joyful in the service that you've given us in the places where you've put us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.